Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. The theme for the month of November is holding history. Now, we know that history is contested ground here in the United States at the moment. Some commentators think arguments over teaching history affected the recent election. How do we teach history? What do we say about a very dark and unjust past? What does it mean to hold that history? In addition to that, we are clearly living during a pivotal moment in American history. Lots of people are asking how we move forward in such weird times. Things have been so weird, we've even invited a scholar of weird studies J.F. Martell, to our assembly, and there he was talking to us about weird from Ottawa, Canada, and that's weird. I performed the wedding for my oldest daughter, who lives in St. Louis, Missouri, from my condo in Golden Valley. Had I met my futurist son-in-law? Sure. We had some dinners together online. That's weird. I finally met my son-in-law in St. Louis face-to-face -face on July 4th weekend, and I spoke that day here at FUS from St. Louis. That's weird. On January 6th, we had a coup attempt here in the U.S. that I watched in real time while I was attending a conference from beautiful downtown Golden Valley. Uh, the conference was taking place in Chicago. The notification that came across my screen as I was hearing about John Dewey's philosophy read, the Capitol building has been breached. Now, that's weird. Uh, holding that history, nearly 800,000 human beings have died of COVID in the past months here in the United States. 9,000 in the state of Minnesota, and more than 5 million in the world. All those lives gone, and we'll never know actually how many. That's weird. And we've been sustaining congregational community for 19 months, a period of time during which almost nobody in our congregational community even saw anybody else in the congregational community except on their computer screens. And that's weird. Shortages of all sorts, mass unemployment, and a serious labor shortage. What's that? People attending national and international conferences without getting on an airplane. Lots of people working at home in their pajamas. It's all weird. Sit down sometime and just start making a list of what has been weird in these past months. And I invite you to try that. Make a list of the totally weird stuff that you never thought you would do 
since March of 2020. Go ahead and blow your own mind because I'm warning you, it's weird. But here's the thing. Of course, we humans, we can deal with weird. We can roll with the punches and adjust. So I'd say go ahead and pat yourself on the back. You've navigated one of the weirdest times in recent history. You did it. Go ahead and pat yourself on the back because you know what? You navigated a time that was freak and weird. How do we hold all this weird history that's flying past us all the time? And I think maybe the distinction that David Brooks makes between resume virtues and eulogy virtues perhaps offers us a clue. But first, I want to read a poem from the St. Lucia poet Derek Walcott. I've read it before, but indulge me, I love it. I think it well summarizes the work all of us need to do on and for ourselves in this weird time. It's titled, Love After Love. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. And Walcott's invitation to love yourself, feast on your life, requires, I think, some self-reflection, some centering, some practice with accessing our own interiority. What David Brooks says, we don't learn in school much anymore. And think about those words of David Brooks. We are called to fulfill both personae, meaning resume values and eulogy values, and must master the art of living forever within the tension between these two natures resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And here's the thing, and this weird, weird time we're living in only underlines this fact, you gotta do both all the time. And according to your age, you've probably got to do one or the other more than the other one. But this weird moment is calling all of us to both practical and high-minded virtues to hold history and to be history, resume virtues and eulogy virtues and living in that tension between them. Now, I'm lucky, I'm nearing retirement. At one time, I had 30 some odd pages of resume uh, and in the privileged worlds of academe, we call it a, a curriculum vitae, right? And you know what? I don't even bother to update my resume anymore because, hey, I'm over the top and I'm over the hill. I'm just about done with those resume things. And that's a good feeling. And it's weird. It's weird to be at the other end 
when another book published or another conference attended doesn't really matter anymore. It's weird. Two of my kids are looking at graduate school right now. They're living in their resume virtues. They have to do that because of the time of life they're living in, and it's weird for me to be experiencing that through them. But it's also clarifying. I'm at that point when I remember those lines from Shakespeare, the evil that men do lives after them, the good is oft interred with their bones. Resume, virtues, and eulogy, virtues. In the Western world, the virtues have been enumerated as four traditionally, wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. Wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. In Confucian tradition, the virtues have been enumerated as three, harmony, harmony, propriety, and benevolence. Now, cultures name actions virtuous according to how pro-social they are. Stealing, killing, lying, these aren't good for keeping a community in harmony, but cooperation, what has come to be known in the political realm as the common good. Yes, I try to closely consider those traditional four virtues in my own life, wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. But for me, anyway, I need the calculus to be considerably more simple because those are big things. So I usually ask myself, rather, how can I be a little bit better today than I was yesterday? Sure, the cynic in me will say, well, that's not too hard. You were a really insufferable jerk yesterday. But COVID weird just got too weird, and I freaked out, I tell myself. So it's okay, but I'll do better today. But that's when I try to remind myself of Derek Walcott's poem, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. The world's philosophy, theology, and religion are not for the faint of heart, to say the least. As a pragmatic Midwestern farmer, I try to boil those big concepts down, and I try to see the smoke and mirrors for what they are. With that in mind, I want to walk through my method of thinking about what is euphemistically called the absolute and those virtues. Uh, and those of you who have been part of my Coffee and Wisdom know that I always start with what we call facts. Facts. Now, already, we're in contested space because not all religions or philosophies say that facts exist. They say everything's an illusion. But I'm going to say that some facts do exist. Gravity, for example. Ignore it as you wish, but the fact is, in our normal lives here on the crust of this planet, things generally fall down rather than up. Gravity is enough of a fact as far as I'm concerned. Well, you may be saying, yeah, but sometimes facts are found uh, through confused or mistaken scientific means, and actually they're not facts. Phlogiston is my favorite example of that. The uh, 17th century scientists ins insisted that it had to exist, but it didn't. It was not ultimately a fact. 
It's true, not all facts are facts, and that does keep us humble, but there is something I think we can call reality, and that's facts. Then, well, let's think about death. Death is a fact in that we see here on the earth that living things do die. It's a fact, it's also a fact that dead bodies deteriorate. We have to do something about dead bodies lest they become biohazards. It's just a fact. But is there something more? Hmm. A soul? A spirit? Tradition and intuition and experience tells us some things about that, but there are questions not yet answered. In the realm of belief, that's not a fact. And so I always distinguish between facts and truths. Facts are measurable. Truths are socially constructed ways of seeing facts. Truths are interpretations of facts. This is where the confusion begins. The human ego, the will, our intuition can tell us that a particular interpretation is a fact, even though we are utterly wrong about that. And that's when religions step in between the self and this misunderstanding. Many religions will say that God or Allah or Deus or whatever is fact and that all else is an illusion, which sounds kind of profound, but actually it only sounds profound. Calling something God and saying that God is a fact doesn't help distinguish between anything, actually. As a way out of the conundrum revealed religions say, hey, I've got scriptures and God told us this. And again, that's not a way out of the conundrum. Having a book that says I'm God and I wrote this book just doesn't make it a fact. But wait, here we are living in these weird times with history flashing by us. What do we do? How do we act morally and ethically? Where are those virtues. And I always add intuition here that, that can go from the subjectivity back to facts because we do know that, oh, Einstein discovered his great theory on a streetcar, watching rain run down the windows. Sometimes intuition can find facts, but we don't know. We never know if that's actually true. Now, given the paucity of facts and the overwhelming number of truths, how do we find a moral compass? Lots of people have worked on this problem over the years. The ancient Greeks and Romans, for example, before Christianity came along and shut down those ideas. It's difficult for those of us who've grown up surrounded by monotheisms telling us, do this and don't do that. But the ancients had gods that explained the origins of things. You know, uh, where do mosquitoes come from? Where did the earth come from? Where's the, the difference between the soil and the water? That was the kind of gods that existed a long time ago. But they were about origins and not how to act morally in the world. It's easy to forget. What would Zeus do was not a productive question to ask for with moral guidance. I mean, because, you know, when was the last time you hurled a thunderbolt? It just doesn't work as a moral keystone. Philosophers, in the face of that, before monotheisms, 
um, philosophers like the Stoics started from the supposition that human beings are social animals. That's a good starting point because we can look around and see it. People live in groups. We're social animals. And it's observable, and it might even be a fact. From that foundation, then, they began to ask themselves some questions. What would a moral social animal do? Well, hmm, things that further sociability. That made sense to them. Cooperation must be a moral virtue. Not lying, stuff like that must be good because we want to stay in a social relationship. Given that human beings are social animals, what would be wrong to do? Well, the things that don't further sociability, cheating, lying, hoarding, and stuff like that. These may or may not be facts, but they produce truths that function to tell us how to act as human beings in the world, then and now. Sometimes things are simpler than they at first appeared, and the Stoics figured that out. That's when those four virtues began to make sense. Wisdom, justice, courage, moderation, they're all pro-social behaviors. That's it, what social animals ought to be doing. Social animals don't need gods to tell us that pro-social behavior is good. Those are the eulogy virtues, and they don't hurt your resume either. You know, it's weird, but most of us didn't have a choice about who our parents were, speaking of ancestors, or who our ancestors were, or what our ancestors did. Yet all of us know that all of those things have everything to do with where and what we are, where and what and if we'll be having lunch today. It comes from a very long line of ancestors. And there are zero-sum games in our society, any society, such as the game of who goes to Ivy League schools or who gets advanced degrees. Some social classes hoard certain social advantages. And the pandemic revealed the yawning gulf between those who can afford to protect themselves and those who cannot afford to protect themselves. Those who can distinguish between truth and falsehood as well. What about those vaccines? Are they good or bad? We live in a deeply divided society because we live in a deeply unjust society. A society that needs people who practice, oh, hmm, maybe wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. Not bad things today either. The Roman writer and philosopher Seneca said that in order to be virtuous, the soul rust, as he called it, the soul rust must incessantly be scrubbed down and rubbed off. Seneca knew it wasn't a one-and-done thing to achieve those four virtues. Well, yeah, so how do we hold history? Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Stoic philosopher Marcus Aurelius looked back thousands of years, and he had this to say, everything now is just as it was in the time of those whom we have buried. Everything now is, is just as it was in the time of those we have buried. And that's wisdom to realize that fact is one way, I think, too, that we can prepare to join those ancestors and think about that. They 
suffered too. They lived in weird times too. Yeah, it's always been weird. But it always is. And you know, a pandemic killed Marcus Aurelius too. Now he said this to carry with you today. You may not have time to read, he said, but you do have time to check your arrogance. You do have time to live beyond mere pleasure and pain. You do have time to be superior to the lust for fame. You do have time to stop being vexed by stupid, ungrateful people. You even have time to care about those people. You even have time to care about those people. Eulogy virtues. They come from scrubbing the soul rust every darn day. So let's try to take the advice of Derek Walcott. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. So may it be. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.